Okay, Forge family, uh, today we begin to look at the prophet Jonah. Uh, we all know that plot line. I mean, that's one of the most favorite stories in the world, you know, Jonah and the whale sort of thing. And I, I remember my mother presenting that on a flannel graph when I was like five years old, um, you know, being sort of goggle-eyed at the idea. Um, <clears throat> this... Uh, it was a prophetic scroll that was included with 12 minor prophets in the latter part of the Old Testament. And it was labeled the 12 by rabbinical scholars. At no time in Hebrew history was there ever any question about the authenticity of the prophet's writings. To the Jewish people, Jonah was a prophet. Uh, much of this text is written in the third person which is also true for the, um, the account that we read and studied in it for the prophet Daniel. A lot of that was third person. <clears throat> Jonah's name in Hebrew is Yonah, and it means dove. He's identified in the text of Scripture as the son of Amittai, and his dad's name has a root in the, in the Hebrew word for faithfulness. Jonah grew up in Gath Hefer. Um, that's in the lands of the tribe of Zebulun. Um, they placed that about four or five miles north of Nazareth. And eventually that whole region became known as Galilee. Jonah lived in the land of Israel. Now, uh, that was the time when he was when he was a prophet. That was the they were the ten northern tribes that had rebelled against Rehoboam, the son of, of Solomon, and split the nation of Israel into, into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. That, had, that took place about 930 B.C. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel, those ten northern tribes. And knowing that the people of Israel would want to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, um, he interdicted that, and he put a golden calf idol at the border in Hebron, right on the crest of the, the ridge that runs up the middle of, of uh, Israel. Uh, and um, he put a second golden calf far to the north uh, in, the, in the city of Dan, or in the, it was also in the, the, the region of the, of the tribe of Dan. And so what he did was he turned... The, the people of Israel away from the worship of Yahweh. 30 years later, the warlike peoples that made up Assyria, uh, located on the Tigris River, in what would be northern Syria, eastern Turkey, and northern Iraq today, they were expanding their empire and defeated, they, at that time, they defeated Syria or Aram and Israel. 900 BC. So I handed you a map. If you'll take just a minute to kind of find where the city of Nineveh is. Uh, it, it's out there. It's, you know, it's not particularly on any trade route. It's relatively mountainous. It's on the Tigris River. And uh, it was um, most recently in the news, uh, maybe three, four years ago, when uh, ISIS... Uh, fighters took over that region and they uh, unearthed uh, 
a palace in, in Nineveh, what ancient Nineveh, and then they looted it, and they sold all those antiquities to try and finance their war against, you know, the great Satan, the United States against Israel, etc. Uh, so there, still, there are still uh, archaeological digs in that region, and, and they keep discovering more and more about, about Assyria. <clears throat> Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, 900, Israel was defeated and they became a vassal nation, a vassal state, a client state for uh, Assyria. That meant they had to pay tribute. Um, and uh, the Assyrians were particularly noted as a brutal, wicked people. Their territorial advance toward northern Israel continued into the 8th century B.C., now, resident today in the British Museum in London is the Black Obelisk. And I, I made a photocopy of it. It's a carved black sandstone um, structure. And, and carved into that surface is a, um, a record of the fact that King Jehu of Israel paid tribute to Shalmaneser III, of Assyria. And, you know, at one time they discovered exactly what that tribute was. How many gold bowls? How many, you know, you know they, it, was, it was a real mixed bag, the kind of thing that, that went north to be laid at the feet of this, of this king. Uh, the calculated military might and brutality of the Assyrian forces can be illustrated by a couple of quotes from Shalmaneser III. These were recorded in cuneiform, on cuneiform tablets. Uh, they're probably about the size of a man's palm and fingers, and it would have been something that had been inscribed with a tool into moist clay and then allowed to dry and get fired. And uh, it wasn't, uh, I think it was early in the 1970s, late 1960s, early 70s, there was a Syrian um, shepherd who was following his flocks and he watched one of his sheep disappear. Just whoop, gone, right in front of him. And he walked up and then the ground crumbled under his feet and he fell into a library with thousands and thousands and thousands of these cuneiform tablets that were all you know, racked and organized and things like that that, that had been buried over the course of time. But the, the, record, the record of these quotes came from some of those uh, tablets, you know, the clay tablets. So Shalmaneser III said this of himself, the legitimate king, the king of the world, the king without rival, the great dragon, the only power within for the four rims of the earth, overlord of all the princes, who has smashed his enemies as if they were earthenware, the strong man, unsparing, who shows no mercy in battle. He had a pretty high view of himself. Yes. <clears throat> now, records of his first year of warfare include this quote. Quote, I stormed the town of Ahuni and the town of Bamaharaha. I conquered it. I slew with the sword 300 of their warriors. Pillars of skulls I erected in front of the town. Now, he's, his taking of the fortified town of Lutibu 
develops the emphasis on extreme violence. Quote, I inflicted a defeat upon them. I slew their soldiers with the sword, descending upon them like Adad. Adad was one of the Mesopotamian ancient gods, godlings. Okay, and, it, he, and Adad was the, was the rain bringer. So he came upon this town like Adad when he brings a rainstorm pouring down. In the moat of the town, I piled up the corpses. I covered the wide plain with the dead bodies of their fighting men. I dyed the mountains with their blood like red wool. I erected pillars of skulls in front of their town, destroyed more towns, tore down their walls, and burnt them all down. Uh, museums today have high-relief carved stone wall panels that were cut out of these palaces that were unearthed and transported. And, you know, the British Museum and others would have, would have these, these wall-sized um, carvings that showed the horrific tortures of captive soldiers by the Assyrians, chariot scenes, and the demeaning of ambassadors who were bringing tribute to the Assyrian kings. When the Assyrian troops applied their scorched earth policies, all vineyards, all orchards surrounding a city were cut down and the irrigation systems were destroyed. Essentially, it was, there was nothing left. Okay? There was little thought of ever colonizing that area again. References within the book of Jonah point out the witchcraft and prostitution that were openly practiced and approved by Assyrian kings. The Assyrians were a violent people worshiping the ancient Mesopotamian pantheon. Now, just prior to the period of the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel, and that was just prior to 793, because that's when he, when he began to reign. He reigned from 793 to 753 BC. The Lord Yahweh, who was not worshipped in Israel. Remember the golden calves? Okay. He sent Jonah as a prophet to prophesy, you know, that the borders of Israel, the ten northern tribes, would be restored. And it's recorded in 2 Kings 14, verse 25. That prophecy came to pass, with Israel's borders extended out to, the, to those of the time of, the king, of King Solomon. Now recall that when Elijah bemoaned his state of, I only, I alone am left and there seeking my life, Okay, and, and God comes back to him and says, there are yet 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, it's highly likely that Jonah's ancestors fit in that category, that they were faithful to Yahweh while being surrounded by Baal worshipers. It sounds like parts of our nation today. Additionally, Israel, even as a client nation to Assyria who had to pay tribute, they prospered and developed a materialistic culture, a very wealthy culture that expressed injustice to poor and oppressed people of Israel, to their own people. Jonah's contemporary prophet, um, who was about the same, almost identical time, was Amos. Okay? And Amos clearly laid out Yahweh's judgment on Israel for their value of wealth over mercy. During the time of Jonah... The nation of Assyria was greatly weakened by the death of one of their kings, Adad Nirar III, and they were in seeming constant battle with northern 
mountain tribes that sought to overthrow Assyria from the north. That set up a date for this composition for the book of Jonah of about 780 B.C. Now, nowhere in the text in Jonah is he named as the author. And what sets this prophetic book apart is the lack of prophecy delivered to Israel from God, from Yahweh. The book of Jonah is all narrative. And as such, it's been labeled as literature by some scholars, and they want to treat it as a short story or a parable. The book of Jonah was viewed as history until about 1800 A.D., the year 1800, when the German higher critics began to dis disassemble and scorn Scripture. And they attempted to redate the writing of Jonah to the maybe second century before Christ. Now, it's in that period of time that the Hebrew writers, Jewish writers, were, were creating these phenomenal uh, fables and stories of monsters and stories of angels and None of those writings, and there are many of them, okay, they were not included in the, in the canon of Scripture. And it's into that non-canon of Scripture that those, those German high, um, higher critical scholars, they wanted to consign this story of Jonah into that category along with the fables. The, to counter that characterization, Jonah was one of four writing prophets that were from the Old Testament that Jesus quoted. After Jesus rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees as vipers and evil speakers, they demand of him a sign. Now, Matthew 12, 39 and following says this, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to to it, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. God's call to Jonah to prophesy to Nineveh introduces no new precedence in the Old Testament. Likewise, God's control over all of nature, while concentrated here, has been seen frequently in the Exodus account, in Samuel's confrontation with the Philistines, and Elijah's confrontation with the, Baal, the, the, the prophets of Baal. Taken together, we can see this book of Jonah as a historical narrative filled with Yahweh's concern for the lost. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we would be prepared by Holy Spirit to be able to see beyond, behind the plot line of the prophet Jonah. We honor you, Lord, for your compassion for the Gentiles, from which many of us draw our ancestors. Make us ready to obey you when you ask us to deliver your messages to those who live opposite and darkened lives. We're grateful for your mercy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.